It's time to write a news story. This is Success Stories with Madison Piper. It's the place where women discuss how to make an impact. Here's your host, Madison Piper. Today on Success Stories, we are bringing in a guest that's probably pretty familiar to some of you high achievers, and that's because she's our very own rich and regular podcast host, Kirsten Saunders. Now, if you know Kirsten, you probably know her husband, Julian, too, and know that they spend their lives helping other people reach financial independence and stability. But believe it or not, Kirsten says she wasn't always great with her finances. She said that she's learned a lot over the years and that her experiences have shaped her mindset with money today. So today we talked to Kirsten about all things money and she shares her story and how her life impacted her enough to create the empire that is now rich and regular. So Kirsten, thank you for coming on here in Success Stories. We're so excited to have you here today. Yes, this is like one of those weird, I guess this is like a sign of our times where you have these internet relationships where it's like, no, I know you. Like, (laughs) we've never actually talked, but it feels like I know you. So yeah, I'm excited to- dig in and have a conversation today. Well, that's, I'm excited that you're excited because that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to dig in. I know that everybody who listens to um, your podcast, Rich and Regular, knows all of your advice and your tips and everything, but I want to know a little bit more about you because this yeah. podcast is all about women of impact and you are definitely a woman of impact. You are helping women and people everywhere discover how to become financially independent and get real with their money, but how'd that start for you? How did you find Rich and Regular? That's a great question. And I'm glad you framed it up that way. Thank you for saying such kind words. I am a woman who has consistently underestimated my impact and for a long time kind of assumed I didn't have any or assumed that it had to be in other people's lives instead of my own. And so my journey kind of started with getting my financial life together Um, and it actually started in my late twenties. So I spent my early twenties and like those years after college, just kind of assuming that making money was easier than managing it. I was in retail and anyone who knows, you know, has worked in retail or service industry knows that like turnover is pretty consistent and it's a pretty easy industry to kind of move up in the ranks. And so I became, you know, I started as a store associate, became a manager, an assistant manager, then a manager. And then I just kept going. And so I was always getting raises. And I assumed that like, I would out earn my spending habits for a long time. So I found myself in my late 20s with a ton of credit card debt, and a very expensive apartment and a fancy car with a big car note to match. And so I came to this point where I knew I needed to get my financial life in order. And it was right around the time where I met my husband, Julian. And it was very difficult for me. But after a lot of talking and coaching and internal work, I really figured out that managing money is something that I can do, something that is accessible to me and something that I can be really good at. And that's kind of why we started Rich and Regular was to start to tell people who are like me or like him, who's naturally very good at money, (laughs) that there is this path to financial freedom, regardless of where you may think that you sit in the spectrum of like, whether you're rich or not rich. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny is I feel like a lot of people, including myself, I'm actually really horrible about this, kind of use the excuse like, oh, I'm just bad with money. I'm just bad with money. I'm never going to be good with money, you know, or like, I don't know, like it's genetic. Yeah. (laughs) And I use it as an excuse to be bad with money um, and to not learn how to save and everything. So 
I mean, when you were in your 20s, did you recognize like, man, I'm not very good at this? Or did you just kind of put it out of your mind? Yeah, no, I, I was I was right there with you. And I think a lot of people are still there. Like whenever we meet couples or even just people in the space of finance, they either identify as like a saver or a spender. And they talk about it as if it's a personality type. Like I am a saver. I have always been a saver. My mama was a saver. Her mama was a saver. Or they're spenders. And it's just like, that's just who I am. And it's this fixed identity. And like, you can't try to change me. All you can do is accept me or make enough money that it doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) And what we've learned is like, these are not personality types, nor are they like fixed identities. The reality is everybody spends money. The difference is the time horizon. So savers are saving money so that they can spend it in the future. And spenders like to spend their money as they receive it. And so it's really just closing the gap on the time horizon of when you spend your money instead of like making spending seem like this bad thing and saving seem like this virtuous thing. It's really just kind of flipping it out its head and saying, everybody spends money. I'm just going to make a decision to try not to spend my money the minute that I get it. Mm-hmm. The minute that I get it. I mean, I feel like that's what a lot of people do. They spend it the minute that they get it. But you just yes. said you met Julian, you married a saver. And I have a question because I feel like there's a, probably quite a few people listening to this podcast right now that can maybe identify with this, but the spender meets the saver. What's yeah. that look like? Did that ever cause like problems when you first met each other, when you were getting ready to get married? How do you approach the topic of money in a relationship? Oh my gosh. Yes. It <laughs> certainly caused quite a bit of conflict up front, but it ended up being a gift because it allowed us to have conversations about money very early in our relationship. But the reality is our very first conversation about money was also an argument about money because we had just taken this very big vacation and we had agreed to split the cost because we were still doing our relationship. So he paid for his portion. I paid for mine. But when we came back, he was ready to buckle down and like pay it off. Like he had put put it on credit cards or he had spent cash and he was ready to like adjust the budget to cover it. And I was just like, no, I want to keep the party going. Like, (laughs) I need a vacation from the vacation. I'm not ready to jump back into real life. And so we had this conversation because at the time we were making similar money. And he was like, how are you paying for all of this? Like, is there something I don't know? And I was just like, no, I'm putting on a credit card. Like, it's 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 covered. Like, (laughs) I'm not worried about it. And it led to a conversation where I revealed that I had some credit card debt and he was just alarmed. He was like, if I had known you had all this debt, I would have never dated you. And we ended up breaking up because of that. And it was a really hard moment. But at the end of the day, because we liked each other so much, it made both of us examine like why we were so steadfast in our beliefs. He needed to examine why he would not date somebody with credit card debt. Like what was it about his financial history and his financial insecurity that would make me a non-viable candidate as a girlfriend just because I have credit card debt. And then I needed to do the same work to figure out like, why am I so flippant about this idea that I owe people, banks, money? Like, why am I not, what is it about the way that I'm thinking that is like not making me prioritize paying it off? And so we both did that work. And to this day, it's been, you know, it was a terrible argument at the time, but it's been foundational to our relationship that we talk about money on a pretty regular basis and that we both kind of come to the middle. We've come out of our extremes of saving and spending and figured out together 
what makes sense for our relationship. That's really great. And I mean, you since you both have such different personalities when it comes to money, or you did before you started talking about it a lot and everything, that has to do with upbringing, right? That has to do with your yeah. experiences in life, you know, the what, how you lived, where you lived. Like there's a lot of different reasons why people's stories about money and personalities towards money are so different. Absolutely. So do you feel like sometimes in relationships there's too much value in the topic of money or do you think that people don't talk about it enough? Oh, I think honestly the the frequency in which you talk about money isn't really like the big um like the big metric to measure like whether you talk about it or a lot or a little bit kind of depends on your relationship and your financial situation. But I do think that a lot of the conversations about money are coded. And so people may not always know that it's a conversation about money. It may translate as like somebody's really angry about a habit that you have or a behavior that you have. And they'll never say it's because that behavior is expensive. They'll pick out something else about that behavior or they'll never say that I'm short at you tonight because I am stressed about the bills that are about to come through from this flat tire that I got today. Like it doesn't necessarily come out that way. It just comes out as these other indicators that something's wrong. But then when we get like the divorce data and we get like all of the data after the relationship has ended, it boils back down to money. So I think What's important for couples or for people in relationships, even if it's not a romantic relationship, is to recognize that financial conversations are really emotional by nature Mm -hmm. and that it may not be about money on the surface. But if you keep digging, you can kind of excavate the financial angle to this, to the conversation or to the conflict and go from there. So I think it's more about like establishing a healthy conversation or cadence around conflict in your relationship and then figuring out if money is playing a role or if it's not. That's really great advice. I'm going to ask you a question that you might not like. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What was the topic of the biggest fight that you and Julian have had about money? Oh, it was probably around supporting his mom. So going back to your point about our different upbringings, Julian was raised by a single mom who immigrated here in her 20s and left New York to come to Atlanta to give them a better life, like when he was 16 or 17, something like that. So she's just a woman who is like, she is steadfast and determined and did all that she could to raise a boy in society in 80s Brooklyn crack era and even in Atlanta in the 90s like she's got a lot going on and he always knew that she would need help in her old age she never really had you know high paying jobs she worked in hotels and then she worked in like hospital administration but she just she never really had a retirement account and then when 2008 crisis happened like she was underwater in the house lots of things happened anyway We knew that we would always have to support her, but that day came sooner than what he had anticipated. And so my background, I grew up in, you know, a nuclear family, two-parent household, middle-class upbringing. I am very, very family-oriented. And so for me, it was a no-brainer that we make room within our financial plans to support her, even if it's just partially. I knew I couldn't, you know, fund her whole life, but it was never a matter for me that we would not support her, that we would try to make you know, this woman figured it out on her own. 
And it led to a lot of conflicts because for him, it just felt like he was trading off his own plans for his own family and the things that he wanted to do things, you know, we had ambitious financial goals from retiring early to starting our own business, to buying a bigger home. We had all of these things, having our first child. And so to factor her into it was really difficult for him, but it was like automatic for me. And so coming to a point where we could have productive, healthy conversations without triggering each other um, took like a year and a half. So that's why I say like it's our biggest fight because it was long. It was long. It was never just like this one big argument. Okay, I guess it's settled. It was like repeated interactions over and over again that, you know, lasted for it. We actually still have these conversations. <laughs> They're not nearly as fiery, but like it lasted for a long time up until March of last year when we finally just formally started supporting mm-hmm. her. But you know what? I feel like a lot of people have this like idea in their head of the the saver, the planner, the one who's like very type A about how they want to spend their money. They're the one that has it right. But, you know, in this particular circumstance, like your adaptability and your like mindset was able to really help push the situation for your mother-in-law forward, right? And yes. to help her. So like there are good things to both sides. So people listening who identify as the spender, like don't feel like you're wrong all the time. There's probably a lot of good things yeah. that come with that mindset. Yes. We we have like to say that math has rules, but life doesn't care because you can spreadsheet all you want. You can create these ambitious savings goals all you want. But like if there's another variant <laughs> that comes and tanks the stock market or the housing, there's a housing crisis and your mortgage is now underwater or your job lays you off suddenly, like all of those plans kind of go out the window and you really need to be able to tune into what your I sound like a <laughs> I sound very woo-woo right now, but like tune into your inner voice mm-hmm. and find what actually matters. Like if you disregard where your values actually are outside of the spreadsheet, outside of like the logic and the numbers associated with finance and math, if you don't know where your values truly are and what actually matters, those situations hit you very differently than if you have this more holistic balanced approach where you understand that like this was the plan, but I can pivot and have different options based off of what's actually happening in my real life. Mm -hmm. I feel like that inner voice, like I know you said it's woo woo, but I don't think so at all. I think it's really important. Um, I think it really comes into play too with like other people's expectations, especially for all of the people pleasers like me who are sitting here listening to this um, because I've caught myself and, you know, I'm in my mid to late twenties. So uh, I'm married. A lot of my friends are not, and they live a very different life than me. Right. And so we're kind of in this weird area of life where other people's expectations are put on me and they want me to spend my money the way that they would spend their money. Right. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I I have been there. (laughs) (laughs) And they get frustrated. Yeah. Yeah, I I have been there because when I was in my late 20s is when I started my debt payoff journey and I went hard. Like I was super aggressive with it. At the time I was following Dave Ramsey baby steps and he's basically he's hardcore. I don't know if any of your listeners follow Dave, but like it's like beans and rice, no fun, no vacations. In hindsight, that was not the best approach <laughs> for me because it led to, you know, once I was out of debt, I was ready to go like, "Woo, crazy." But it worked, right? (laughs) I got it done and it was over with, but it was very difficult at the time 
friendship wise, because my friends were doing exactly what your friends are doing. They were living their best lives. We were all child free at the time. I was in a serious relationship and about to be married, but like none of us had children and travel was cheap and like, not like it is today, like easy. It was super, it was super easy to just kind of go away for a week or two. And I wasn't able to do that. And luckily on the other side of it, like now looking back 10 years later, um, it didn't ruin any friendships, but there are times where I have regrets and had wished I had taken like a more balanced approach, Mm -hmm. but I don't regret prioritizing my finances at that stage in my life because I've been able to watch 10 years of compounding interest in the biggest bull market that we've seen, the longest bull market that we've seen in a very long time. And so I am now in a position that's advantageous financially. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are coming to me saying, okay, how do I not miss the next (laughs) one? Like I'm ready to sit down. So now what do I do? (laughs) Like you did it right. You did it right. Yeah. Like (laughs) short-term pain for long-term gain for sure. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Like, I mean, also, I feel like when you're in a different stage of life, like there are things that you want to spend your money on that if you say yes to other people, you won't be able to. Like if you want to go on a vacation, like we were just talking about, or if you want, you know, something new for your home, I don't know, but they want you to go to brunch every single Sunday. Well, you know, that's going to put that vacation, that's going to put that trip, that item for your house off further and further, the more brunches that you go to. So it's like about saying yes to you, I guess, and no to other. I, I don't know. What do you feel about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It is about saying yes to future you. It's you mm-hmm. becoming very intimate with like future you. Like I envision her all the time and I think about what she's into and I'm like, how the hell is she going to pay for that? <laughs> and like, it's like, okay, I need to set aside money for 50 year old me who still likes to go to spas and take solo vacations and buy eucalyptus and bamboo sheets. And like, (laughs) there's a list of things that I really enjoy that are not necessarily inexpensive. So you do have to think about future you. And then you also have to think about your money differently. There's a book called Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robbins. And she basically equates money to energy and to time. And she says, like, every time that you're spending, you know, a dollar, I'm using hypothetical examples here, but every time you're spending a dollar, you're shaving an hour off. I mean, you're adding an hour to how long you have to work or you're adding an hour to how long you have to you have until you retire. And so her book was actually one of the ones that really made me think about um, spending differently, because, Mm -hmm. again, earning money has never really been my my challenge. It was just like what to do with it. And her book made me realize that like time is the most luxurious item you can own. And so use your money to buy more time to do the things that you want. Speaking of time, I have a question for you. I feel like time is so important to us now that we all thrive on convenience. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but like convenience is expensive. Yes. Like (laughs) very. Convenience and it's getting more expensive. Yes. Like it's it it really adds up over time. You know what I mean? Like that Starbucks run instead of making your own coffee. I mean, that adds up. Oh my gosh. Yes. It is and it's everywhere. Like there are convenience fees in all things. Even just like the idea that you can use your phone to get a chauffeur 
to take you anywhere you want in town <laughs> at the drop of a, do- like that's Uber, right? Mm-hmm. It's a private chauffeur. That's oh my not normal. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's not something we should necessarily normalize as affordable or cheap because mm-hmm. that's not like in the grand scheme of things, a need. The same is true for like somebody bringing you your dinner literally to your door that somebody else prepared in their restaurant and like didn't serve guests because they were making your food. Like it's, it's a whole culture of convenience where, and again, I'm a little more sensitive to it because I worked in hospitality and service industries. And so I know what it's like to be in real time environments with customers and demands and lots going on. And so I recognize that some of the conveniences and modern technology that we have right now is actually a luxury product that doesn't feel luxury because it's been historically so cheap. Mm -hmm. And now we're at the point now where that's turning on its head, where some of the gig workers and employees are like, no, actually, I do want to make more than $2 an hour, which means that this has to cost you, the customer, more money. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that convenience is going to continue to exist as it is today, where it is already expensive, and not get even more expensive is pretty short-sighted on our end. Mm -hmm. So it's best if you are someone who likes these services and it's taking up a good portion of your budget that you start to try to wean yourself off a little bit because, again, this is only going to get to be more expensive. And if you tell yourself that that is a default habit in your life, it will eat up the majority of your budget and you don't know what happened to it. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was thinking about you know, there's a specific like pharmacy that is on every single corner, you know? Um, and I mm-hmm. went there to buy something a few weeks ago and I was like, this just seems really expensive. Like I didn't realize it cost this much money. I went somewhere else. It was half the price. I was like, what, yes. what are you paying? You're paying <laughs> for the, the fact that it's across the street from you. Exactly. Exactly. So I discovered that with my Amazon habit. Like I, have used Amazon forever. I'm a Prime member. <laughs> Very proud of my Prime membership. But like I had gotten to the habit in like ordering basics. So like my toilet paper, my toothpaste, my everything was coming through Amazon and I just wasn't going to the store. And then I finally went to the store like a couple weeks ago and I was just like, wow, I have really been overpaying for these products because I can just walk in here and they're like half the cost. Like everything on Amazon is not cheaper than in store. Like you can easily go to Walmart or some other retailer and get the same thing for significantly cheaper and it's better for the environment. So like I'm learning even now with all of my expertise, I'm using air quotes, expertise, like there are still conveniences that I have in my life that I'm paying a premium for because they're so convenient. And it's something that you Mm -hmm. have to be mindful of because it's very easy to get sucked into a habit of paying for convenience. And then you realize that that's like a 40% markup. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to ask you about with convenience though, and I feel like this is really important to recognize is that some people I'm thinking mothers, working mothers need that convenience. They, they, Mm -hmm. there's a time in your life where that convenience is really important. That luxury is really important. Right. But I'm thinking about, you know, the standards of, of being a mom now, especially with social media, like it's so hard and you've always feel like you have yes. to have the, the best this, the best that for your kids, right? And like then the moms go mm-hmm. and they spend the most money on this like high chair that's going to – you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, 
$2,000. And oh, you can, yeah. You know, so I want to talk a little yes. bit about your experience as a mother in regards to money and how you navigate, like, the how you navigate the expectations that are put on you from social media, from from advertisers, from all of that, and what you actually need? Oh, that's such a great question. And I have been on both sides of the spectrum. When I was pregnant, and especially when I was a new mom, I bought all the things. Like, <laughs> I, I specifically did not have like a traditional baby registry. I did for the basics, for diapers, for things that you know you need. But I would ask people for gift cards because I wanted to be very specific and I was getting targeted by all this stuff on Instagram and through all of the, you know, Google ads that I wanted to buy that wasn't necessarily in a store. So it was just like, give me a gift card, give me cash, and I will like get all of the gadgets that you guys don't know about, but that I do <laughs> because they're in my timeline. And so early on, I bought way too much stuff. We didn't end up using half of it. And we have a habit in our house where we're purging. So we, call in like a junk caller twice a year, maybe three times and like get rid of, you know, anything that we aren't using. That's just taking up space. We like to live very light. And so, um, after the first like couple times where it was just like, he was coming to pick up stuff. And if we couldn't donate it or we couldn't sell it, like it would just get thrown away. And it really started to like eat at me because I have this thing around waste now, like, Waste is for me is a sign that I wasn't thinking through like what I was going to use this for enough. Like the fact that I would have something and not use it was just like a trigger to me. And so I've only been a mom for four and a half years. So if there are more experienced moms on the line, <laughs> please send me a note with your own tips. But in those four and a half years, I've realized what actually matters and what makes sense for my son and what makes sense for our lifestyle. And I've cut back like dramatically on how much I buy and what kinds of things I consume. And that's been a huge help. Like today, my son's favorite toys are like boxes, like just <laughs> standard old <laughs> boxes, crayons. Like I've gone, I mean, he loves the iPad, but I've gone back to like basic analog toys, like the toys you had when you were growing up, like a slinky, <laughs> like just little stuff that you don't, you're not going to see an Instagram ad for a slinky because they don't have the budget like that, but it's a great toy. It keeps them busy for hours. Same with blocks and, you know, just basic stuff. So mm -hmm. it, it has been an exercise in deprogramming and reprogramming, but, and I'm sure it will continue as he gets older and starts to have peer pressure but a lot of it has come just through the community of other moms that I found in the personal finance space where, you know, they're quick to say, don't buy that new look on your local, you know, neighborhood Facebook group to see if someone has one that they want to swap or give away. Ask your friends who have kids in the same age range if they have clothes or like Christmas pajamas that they don't need anymore. And so we've kind of built this little ecosystem where we're all sharing things instead of mm -hmm. buying them new and like throwing them away. Do you ever feel like some of these companies that are like targeting, like especially new moms, I'm thinking new moms, which are like, it's such a vulnerable place to be. 
like the hormones oh, of yeah. like going through pregnancy and postpartum and then you want the best for your kid and the, you, there's just it's such a vulnerable place to be you look at these companies and you're like have you no shame really you're just gonna like throw this yes. on my Instagram and make me feel like I have to spend all this you know what I mean I'm barely holding on <laughs> and they make you feel like everything you're experiencing is a problem that can be solved Mm -hmm. Versus just like the natural progress of like a tiny little human who is like new to all this. It's Mm -hmm. like they will sell you products that are supposed to help your baby cry less or sleep more or eat differently. And it's like, well, they don't like (laughs) (laughs) even with a product that helps them sleep more. They're still not going to freaking sleep Mm -hmm. because that's not like that's you have to teach them how Mm -hmm. (laughs) to sleep through the night. You have to teach them how to, you know, play and and interact. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it was just me reacting to like, you know, very specific copywriting that's like, are you tired of hearing your baby cry? And Mm -hmm. it's like, yes, (laughs) buy this pacifier that has a silicon something or another that Mm -hmm. you can freeze and put fruit in. And it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. but really a regular pacifier or a finger or like (laughs) babies are going to put their mouth on anything. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of like, like, again, just like repositioning things that are normal and part of the process as like problems that only they can solve for you. And yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. it's tough, especially for new moms. Well, I feel like, you know, you're talking about the, the certain pacifiers and like the headlines, right? Like the headlines, those are what grab you. And I'm thinking about like, um, diet culture, especially, which like, you know, diet culture is like a little bit of problem right now. And like they, everybody's marketing like this, like magic pill that's going to make you lose 50 pounds in the next three months. But if you read the fine print of it, which no one does, by the way, it's like (laughs) only works with like healthy diet and exercise. It's like, okay, well, those lifestyle change, that's what, you know, that's free. (laughs) You can do that for free. Nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. The diet industry follows the same patterns. And, you know, honestly, the financial services industry, although it's far more regulated than some of these other industries, has been guilty of doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. whether it's a credit card or a bank or a course or a program. Like it's all just kind of like meant to make you feel like the solution to your life's biggest challenges are outside of you. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to like that inner voice and really figuring out a way to make sure that you can hear yourself above all of that. You may Mm -hmm. still hear yourself and decide to go and purchase any of these things. There have been baby products and, you know, workout items and and financial services that have been great in my life, but a lot of them, you know, may or may not help. So it's just making sure that you have a good compass Mm -hmm. inside to know like why you're interested in this thing and then making sure that you like your reasons for for wanting it. How did you train yourself to get past the headline and really lo- like talk speak logic with you? Yo, um I have a couple of tools in my toolbox. Um the first is putting limits on my screen time on the phone. So if you have an iPhone, you can like set when it kicks you out of <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And so I have a limit for that. Sometimes I ignore it and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Like you can <laughs> bypass it, obviously. <laughs> but it's always a reminder that like you've hit your max mm-hmm. for today. 
The second is that I journal consistently. So in the mornings, I set aside time to just write whatever's in my head. It's like a free write. Like I'm not, it's not, whenever I say journal, I think people think of like fifth grade you where you're like, dear diary, (laughs) Jessica was so mean to me today. (laughs) Like it's literally not that it's like meditating. So if you're familiar with meditating where you're just kind of like closing your eyes and watching the thoughts go by in your head and trying not to act on them, but just focus on your breathing kind of thing. Well, in my, in my practice, I'm like writing every thought that comes to my head. So it's not any coherent entry when I'm done. It's like, make sure Bo has breakfast. Oh, I need to do this thing. I need to call Chanel back. I hate the way my carpet looks right now. Like it's just a (laughs) list of whatever I'm thinking, but it empties my head. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going into the world and starting the day with like an empty vessel And then I would say the other things that I've done is just make sure that I'm actively like one, (laughs) I was going to say one with nature, but (laughs) that that sounds so like Hallmark card, but I do like to spend a lot of time outside because I think my connection to nature is just such a powerful reminder that there are seasons to things. There are times where things are beautiful and there are times where things are like gray and stormy, but at the end of the day, it's all necessary. And so like never give weight to any one thing more than it requires. Like just being outside and watching the animals and the trees and people just helps remind me of like, I'm just a part of a larger thing. Mm -hmm. And so that has helped me stay centered and not fall for all of the noise in advertising and, Mm-hmm. you know, social media. So, I mean, that's really great advice, like getting grounded with like the actual yeah. world around you instead mm-hmm. of the world, the virtual world on your screen. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's great advice. I want to pivot really quick and I want to ask a question because I know that our time is coming up, you know, soon here. Um, but I want you to tell the story because I really enjoy this story of how you came up with rich and regular in the first place. Um, because when a lot of people think rich, they think fabulous and, you know, like, like almost like gaudy, like they, they, they want to be just yes. so like luxurious and you guys are rich and regular and that happened over pancakes, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> yeah, there was, a um, there was, we were out at breakfast one time and, It was one of those fancy like brunch places that they only serve brunch. Like they're open from like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. There's no dinner. There's no lunch. It's only brunch and breakfast kind of thing. And so typically at these places, they have like a variety of pancakes, a variety of waffles, because that's all they do is make breakfast. So you can get any flavor. So this place had like six or seven different types of pancakes, lemon ricotta, blueberry, strawberry, cinnamon apple like all different types of pancakes and there was a man who was sitting at the table and he was just like hey i just want some y'all ain't got no regular pancakes (laughs) like just regular pancakes and she was like um so a pancake and he was like no but i don't want no fruit i just want regular (laughs) pancakes and he was so insistent and she kept saying i think i understand what you're saying you just want pancakes and he was like no Cause y'all have pancakes here and they have all this stuff in them and I'm not comfortable with it. Like I just want regular pancakes. And I totally understood his sentiment because I had a similar reaction when I would look up financial independence or 
financial freedom or stories about people who had retired early, it just felt like it was full of extreme levels of wealth. Like the goals and the aspirations weren't attainable. It was like you had to be LeBron James or, you know, Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey or just people who are at the top of their game, just exceptional people. You had to have a ton of money, like not just $1 million, but $10 million, $15 million, $100 million. And so what we wanted to create with Rich and Regular was like a pathway for financial independence for middle class folks. Like what's a good lifestyle? Not even going to talk about like numbers because there's so many variables about like, you know, your lifestyle and where you live and how far $100,000 goes here versus somewhere else. But like, what's a good lifestyle to aspire to if you know that you're not going to be famous, if you know you're not going to be a celebrity, if you know that like your skill set or your work ethic or even your desire is never going to lead to a hundred million dollar payout, what's what what are we role modeling? Like what is a good example? And so we created our space and our site, our blog, our YouTube channel to really just highlight what it looks like to have enough money to be comfortable, (laughs) to be able to wake up when you want to decide, be picky about the kind of work that you do, decide if you want a vacation for three days or for three weeks. Like those are the kinds of decisions that we encounter in our everyday life. And I just don't feel like there's enough media or examples of people who are living that lifestyle versus like the very exclusive rich and famous lifestyle. I, I really love that because you guys have created a space of like relatability in the conversation of money. And I feel like, especially when you're talking about like building income and like, you know, everything you, you're, you're right. You look online yeah. and it's like the stories about the Oprah Winfrey's of the world. And you're like, I want that, but let's be realistic. How attainable is that? There's a reason that's the top 1%, yeah. right? So you're real with exactly. people. You guys get real with people and you're like, it's a relatable situation. And I feel like that's one of the reasons like upon like your expertise and everything that you guys bring to the table that you guys are so successful, that you guys have made the impact that you've made. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I I completely agree that there's some nuance missing from the conversation in that like those people that are in the top 1%, they have dedicated their entire lives to being in that top 1%. They've dedicated their entire lives to their greatness. And while that may be an option for some people, we may not want to do that. And so we talk about income as if like, what if you just picked a project for this year that would generate an extra $15,000? Like, you don't have to do this for life. You don't have to do this all year. You don't even have to do it next year. But like you can do it one time and then move on. And I don't think people talk about income in that way because we're so used to lifetime income. We're so used to lifetime careers or like lifetime skill sets instead of just saying, what do you need for this year specifically? Mm-hmm. If you want to max out your IRA or be able to get a new car, then you need a $15,000 project or a $10,000 side hustle, which doesn't mean that you have to drive for Uber forever, but it might mean that Thursdays go to, you know, the gig economy, you run an Etsy shop on like Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you can kind of piece it together however you want. But I think it's really just like unlocking that in people that there are different ways to make money and different ways to spend money than what you might have been taught or shown growing up. I love that. I'm wondering too, like, 
Did you guys come up with rich and regular? Like, I mean, was any part of it just like for people who find comfort, who do want that luxurious income where they're forever comfortable, they never have to worry about money, but they find comfort in the regular lifestyle. They don't want to be famous. Yes. They don't want to be known. They don't want, they want to have that level of income. They want to learn to save and do the best they can with their money, invest, do all of that. But they don't want the spotlight on them. And like I'm thinking about yes. I I lived in Omaha, Nebraska for a year after I graduated college. And I remember I was there with my now husband, um, and he grew up there. And Warren Buffett lives in Omaha, Nebraska, right? That's where mm-hmm. he's from. And he was like, you know, I know where his house is. I'm like, no way. Oh my God, I have to go see his house. <laughs> like, like, so he like drove me past Warren Buffett's house. It's like, that's Warren Buffett's house. I was like so <laughs> yeah. underwhelmed. Yes. Underwhelming. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. No, that's exactly what we, that's exactly what we're, we're trying to create. Cause there's so much, I don't want to call it bad advice, but I think it is advice that should be taken with a grain of salt about what making it requires of you. Like there's that saying, you know, your net work is your net, your net worth is your network or something or you know, your income is relative to like the five people you spend the most time around and you got to be willing to like let friends go. And it's like, but what if I don't want to? Like, what if my friendship isn't defined around how much money that person makes? I still want to be able to have a friendship with someone, even though they may have different economic goals than me. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the regular comes in, where it's like, I'm not so rich that I'm removed from every single, you know, everyday life and everyday problems. There was a joke on, we were watching something and it was um, a conversation between Chris Rock and Jamie Foxx, who are two comedians. And Chris Rock, who used to be huge, like back in the 90s and even the 2000s, was ready to come back to like stand up and, and to film. And he asked Jamie Foxx, who had been working, you know, actively working the last decade, like, what do I need to know? Who do I need to know? And Jamie Foxx was like, the first thing you got to do is fix your house <laughs> because it's too comfortable. <laughs> he was like, I purposely have things in my house that are broken or don't work well so that I can remain funny. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a real moment because it's like if things are too perfect, if things if you have so much money where you've removed every discomfort and inconvenience in your life, it makes you unrelatable to a lot of people because your problems presumably are very different at that level of wealth. And it's like, I didn't necessarily want to be at the level of wealth where like, I just cannot relate to the problems Mm -hmm. of my friends and family. And to me, that's my enough line. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to have an enough line. And mine is like, to the point where I just can't relate with people. That means I've probably made too much money and I can relax. So yeah, it was, I don't know where I was going with that story, but, I love but to it. your point, love it was it. really, it was really about having like one foot in both worlds, making sure that my family is set up, that we have the scaffolding or the foundation for generational wealth. And so that my son doesn't have to worry about some of the things that his father, Julian did when he was growing up, but also making sure that like, I'm not completely abandoning a lot of the people and the network that made me who I am. Right. They may not have as much money, but they're good people and I don't want to lose them out of my life. So I don't look at it as like not 
Like, I don't look at it as some people do where it's like, oh, you're settling. I just look at it as like, this is the life that I want for myself. So mm-hmm. I love that. Hopefully that I love answers that. the question. It absolutely does. I'm so glad I brought you on too, because like not only are you great at teaching people about money and helping them get better with their finances and uh, super inspirational and educational, you're also super relatable. And that's like one of, I feel like the biggest ways that you can have impact on people is if they can look at you and say, oh my gosh, okay, she gets it, you know, then they want to listen to you. And it, you, you do a really great job of that. And, you know, we obviously, we love you here at Success and everybody listening to this Hopefully they've seen you a lot of on success. They have listened to your rich and regular podcast, but where else can they find more about you and Julian? Yes. So we are on, uh, we have a podcast, rich and regular podcast presented by success. And then we are on every social media network under the acronym. I mean, not the acronym, the username rich and regular. So we have a YouTube and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then our website is richandregular.com. I love it. Well, make sure everybody go give them a follow. They've got great content. The, you'll be sure to get good with your money when when you follow them um, and listen to their <laughs> podcast. But Julian, thank you so much for coming on here today. Or, oh my God, I just called you your husband's name. Oh my gosh, I'm so used to Kirsten and Julian in the same sentence. Oh my gosh. Okay, glad I got that, Kirsten. Thank you so much for coming on here today. We're so excited to have of you on course. here. Of course. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. This has been Success Stories with Madison Piper. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.